controversy series. Yeah, oh, we're, nice. we're starting uh, a controversy series. Um, and we're going to start off by talking about the Bible. We're going to do a deep dive crash course into the Bible, uh, the controversial questions you might have about the Bible, its formation, um, what it means, things like this. Um, things that maybe you've heard being asked by non-Christian friends, things maybe you've thought of before, things that you don't know how to answer, things maybe that you do know how to answer. Um, so we're going to do that, but before we do that, let's close our eyes and pray. Uh, dear Lord, we thank you for the time that we have together tonight. Thank you for um, who you are and what you do for us. Um, Lord, we just put before you this time that we have together. Speak, Lord. Um, we want to not just learn, but we want to be impacted by what we learn, Lord. We want to um, be transformed by the truth, um, Lord. And you say that your truth sets us free, Lord, and that you make us your children. So, Lord, we want to be drawn deeper into that relationship with you tonight through the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm. All right, let's open up the thing. What, the video? The, the no, no, the PowerPoint. Okay, so <clears throat> uh, what is the Bible? Um, I guess... Let's uh, throw it out to you guys. What's the Bible to you? If, you know, someone uh, you're talking to is like, well, you know, what, what actually is the Bible? Like, what, isn't it just the same as, like, the Quran or the Torah or the uh, Bhagavad Gita or whatever? Like, what's, what's the Bible to you guys? How would you describe it in a sentence or in a word or a couple words? It's the truth. The truth? Okay. The good news. The good news. Very nice. Just the Tetris boys? <laughs> okay, well, I guess before we answer what it is, I guess the first question to ask is, uh, why should we care? Um, why is it important? Why is the Bible important? And why is this topic in particular important? I think that, uh, first of all, it's important because if you don't know what the Bible is and what it says and um, uh, how it came to the conclusion uh, of, of what it is that we know it today, then you won't be able to defend it. You won't be able to understand it. Uh, you won't be able to dive deeper into it. Um, and you're not going to be able to really, um, ex- I guess, experience it for the true beauty- beautiful um, thing that it is. Um, it's also something that the more you know about the Bible, the more you know what it is and um, the intention and the uh, character and the design and all these things actually helps you, um, I guess, learn more about God too. Uh, It's actually something that expands your faith and expands your understanding of Him and I think therefore by definition expands your relationship with Him. Um, And also uh, it helps you evaluate the potential truths and the meaning behind that that God wants us to know. I think that a lot of the thing when, you know, I don't know, atheists or, or critics of the Bible when they kind of talk about the Bible they'll criticize it from many different kind of uh, approaches, but if you're not able to kind of understand why they're criticizing it or, or what they're actually trying to get at, and, and usually their criticism is actually quite um, flawed and superficial, as we'll hopefully dive into tonight, um, you'll be able to understand that actually they're missing the point in a lot of areas and you'll be able to defend, uh, well, not that the Bible needs defending, just FYI, but you'll be able to, I guess, at least let it bounce off you so that your faith um, is not shaken, um, and yet yeah, you should be rooted in God's word. So that's why it's important. Um, just before we move on to the next slide, uh, C.S. Lewis said something quite beautiful one time. Uh, he said that uh, to know something, to really know something, is to know the purpose behind it. So if you want to, you know, if I pulled out a hammer and then I uh, started using it to uh, try to like chop a bit of wood. Um, I don't know what a hammer is, right? Because I'm using it for the wrong purpose, yeah? Um, We do this with the Bible time and time again. Uh, You will find people bring up Genesis 1 as this like scientific treatise on how God creates the world. You're using a hammer to try to chop a piece of wood. Sometimes you can chop a piece of wood with a hammer, but that's not what it's for, okay? Um, same deal. Some people will use the Bible uh, to expound on these moral rules 
and tell you this is the way you need to live your life and you need to follow it by this letter of the law and this and that and that. And then what happens is you'll come across a law like uh, don't bound an oxen uh, uh, when it's uh, plowing the, the wheat field and then all of a sudden you're like, what? Or uh, the slave, when you take a female slave, uh, when you like... You know, in Leviticus, when you're like fighting in a war and you see a female uh, and you want her as your wife or you want to take her, you've got to make her your wife, you've got to clip her nails and cut her hair and all this kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden, you're like, what? So if the Bible is moral law to the nth degree, you've got to follow it to the letter, again, you're going to embarrass yourself. You're using a hammer to, to chop a piece of wood. Um, that's not to say that the Bible isn't to instruct our lives. It is. And that's not to say that it isn't actually profound wisdom and knowledge in many domains, I think, even including science. But you've got to understand the purpose and the context and the reason behind it. And so, yeah, if you know the purpose for something, you know what it is. If you know what it is, you know the purpose of it. And if you know the purpose, you can apply it properly in your life. You can be rooted in truth. So that's why tonight is hopefully important and why it's hopefully helpful as well. Okay, let's move on. So let's start off by what it's not. Okay. The Bible is not a fantasy book, okay? If you're reading the Bible as just a set of really cool fantasy stories, read Game of Thrones, read Harry Potter, read Lord of the Rings. They're all very good. Maybe not Game of Thrones. Maybe I shouldn't be supporting that. <laughs> from Harry Potter has witchcraft. Well, let's debate <laughs> that. <laughs> let's debate that in connect groups. Uh, but anyway, so um, it's not a fantasy book. In fact... You know, you'll hear actually a lot of Christians. Oh, Christians. Oh, I don't want to like judge you. But, but you'll hear a lot of people. They'll pull up stories from the Bible and they will um, essentially treat it as just fairy tales. And they'll be like, this is a great fairy tale. Or this is a great archetypal, blah, blah, blah. And you'll hear words like archetypes all the time. Now, uh, yeah, there are archetypes. And yeah, a lot of the stories in the Bible are actually written very simplified and very broken down to just give you and this is the way that narrative in in ancient texts work it's not just the bible that works like this um uh but yes there are a lot of simplified stories we're not seeing a story or, or hearing or reading a story the way that we would read it or hear it in today's uh, language but that doesn't mean that what the authors are writing is not 100 percent their conviction of the truth um, and also what god wants us to know but in saying that um, there are, again, there's a purpose behind the stories. The purpose is not to kind of say, all right, so therefore, the, before the flood, there was no rain ever on the earth and there was this dome of ice and all this kind of stuff. No, you keep it to what's in the Bible. You keep it to actually understanding why it's written, what is written is, is why it's, is, is there. Um, so it's not a pie-in-the-sky fantasy. The authors of the Bible are not just writing a fictitious, uh, amazing uh, story. It's not an adaptation of other religious texts. Um, some people will look at particularly, <clears throat> pardon me, particularly the Gospels. They'll look at the story of Jesus and they'll be like, oh, Jesus is just like Horace. Oh, Jesus is just like uh, this um, whatever ancient god or something like that. And they'll draw parallels from other ancient myths or Hercules or this or that and the other thing. And they'll draw uh, parallels and they'll be just like, the Bible is uh, just a bunch of essentially a bunch of just copying stories and things like this. And no, that's not the case. In fact, the Bible tends to go out of its way to be countercultural. tends to go out of its way to uh, antagonistically approach a lot of the common stories of the day. Uh, again, Genesis 1, uh, the creation story, is a direct opposition to the Babylonian and the ancient um, uh, polytheistic... The ancient polytheistic... Uh, narratives of creation. So like you'll hear about most creation stories, uh, this big cataclysmic event between a bunch of gods warring, and then all of a sudden out of that destruction and carnage, humanity is created to serve the gods. But cr uh, creation, as, as is revealed in Genesis, is actually the product of a good, loving God who desires to make humanity um, uh, for the sole purpose of not battling or serving him, but rather uh, to join with him, to be co-creators and co-workers with him to bring about beauty in the world. So a direct opposition against uh, what the world uh, and what other kind of mythology and things state. Um, it's not a manip manipulative propaganda thing. Uh, some people have this like view of the Bible that it's a bunch of <clears throat> men and like, you know, 
shady areas that are like sitting down together and they're like, all right, what can we put in here that can make everyone follow us better? And you know, what, how can we manipulate? It's not that at all. In fact, again, uh, the Bible, most of the authors of the Bible um, were uh, outcasts, social outcasts. Um, all the prophets, um, most of uh, the, uh, most of them were scholars and, and just historians as well um, and then you've got obviously the apostles who were like fishermen and all these other random things so these are people who are not uh, influential these are people who are not who were literally social outcasts of their day and these are the ones penning the um, the uh, books of the Bible and, uh, and yeah and it has lasted for literally four to six thousand years um, and it's not a book that fell from heaven so it's not a random uh, it's not God just was like, yo, Moses, catch this, and then he's like, no, it's not like that. Um, now, this is where things can get dicey. I think every single one of you agree with the list so far, and then this is where it gets dicey. This is where some of you are like, whoa, the Bible is God's inspired, divine word to humanity. Yes, it is, 100%, but it was written by people. It was written by people. Um, this is the, almost the paradox, but the beauty behind the Bible, that it is God's divine word, uh, his divine inspired, beautiful message and word to people through dirty human beings, through flesh and bone and mud and uh, sweat and blood and tears. And this is the, uh, the profound nature of the Bible. And this is also... Uh, the profound beauty in the Bible as well. Um, but a lot of people who go into this avenue, who start to learn about the Bible, it shakes their faith. They're like, what? There was, th th what? This ancient text doesn't correspond with this ancient text? Well, no, it doesn't. Because they're a few thousand years apart, and because people are edit editorializing the, the scriptures as it develops, and they're collating, and they're adding, and they're um, not... We'll get to this in more detail, by the way. If there's anything that I'm like severely offending you in, I will explain. But um, but yeah, the, this is how the Word of God unfolded. Um, and last but not least, it's not ghostwriting. It's not uh, a bunch of prophets that were in a room. Then all of a sudden, God just zapped them, and they went into a trance, and then they just started writing. No, or inscribing, or whatever you want to picture them doing. No, these were people who were, again, inspired by the Holy Spirit um, and who were convicted with a word from God and who wrote it down and were convicted of certain historical um, uh, events being an unfolding narrative that God was orchestrating and wrote it down in that way. So, that's what it's not. Let's have a look at what it is, finally. Okay, so to illustrate what it is, we're going to look at two passages. Pull it out in your Bibles on your phone, or if you've got the hard copy, great. So the first story is in Exodus chapter 17. Bit of trivia. This is the first time we read about the creation of the Bible. This is well, the, the Scriptures. This is the first time that it's actually written in the Scriptures to write the Scriptures. Um, so we'll read it together. You ready? Exodus chapter 17, beginning from verse 10. Uh, <clears throat> So this is the story where uh, uh, Moses and the Israelites have just been liberated, just been uh, taken on the exodus out from Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea, and they've just had a battle with the Amalekites. And uh, you get that famous story where Moses holds up his hands, and they're winning. Um, every time that they're winning, uh, it's because Moses' hands are lifted high, and he's interceding on behalf of the Israelites to God. And then when his hands weaken, they lose. And anyway, after they win the battle... Uh, this is what happens. Um, yeah, I'll just skip down to verse 12. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone, put it under him. He sat on it. Aaron and Hur uh, held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. Verse 13, so Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with a sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it. Because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. So the first reference of someone writing something down as scripture is God commanding Moses in the context of this great victory, um, not just 
after, because obviously Moses, if you know about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, you know that the writing is attributed to Moses. So he's already written Genesis, he's already written the first bit of Exodus. So here we're getting on in the story. So Moses has already written stuff, but this is the first time he chooses to interject and say, by the way, God told me to write this. Yeah? Why? Well, I think we can draw a few reasonable conclusions. One is that this is uh, trying to reveal something about God. That God is good, he's faithful, he's brought them out of Egypt, and he's not just going to let them get destroyed and wiped out at the very first sign of trouble and danger. And two, God wants his people to remember it. The purpose of the word of God, the purpose of the Bible, is to show you who God is and to remind you of it. Okay? The second time that um, we read about this like you know, God commanding scripture to be written is uh, a few chapters later in Exodus chapter 24. And this is just after he's given him the Ten Commandments. Okay? Um, and Moses has just given it to the people. This is what we read in chapter 24 verses 4 uh, to, wait, 3 to 4. <clears throat> and it says this, When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down, everything that the Lord had said. So the second reference, the second time where Moses is like, by the way, God, you know, I felt the need and I felt the conviction to write this down, was after God had given him his commands, the covenant, uh, the rules of the covenant. We talked about the covenant, I think last week, week before, I can't remember. Anyway, and <clears throat> so the, essentially the, uh, the marriage vows that Israel were to live by, right? A covenant is not just a bunch of rules. Uh, a covenant is uh, a binding of two parties, two groups, two individuals um, to make a union together. It's, it's a bunch of rules and laws that are um, enveloped by an overall relationship, right? That's what a covenant is. So God's just given these laws, these covenantal commands, and he's just, uh, and Moses has written them down, and the people are like, we're on board. So Moses here is saying, hey, yeah, by the way, Scripture, this scripture, the second, well, I think the second intentional purpose behind the word of God is to say, this is a relationship. This is a story of a relationship. And these are the vows that God has made or has, has asked us to make if we're going to be in relationship with him. <clears throat> that this is a character between this loving, wonderful God and this is a covenantal relationship with him. And these are the rules that we live by. So, what's the Bible? Really, if you want to sum it up, you could sum it up in those two points, really, if you wanted to. I mean, I think there's more to it. I think the uh, ancient uh, Hebrew uh, uh, rabbis, and not just ancient, but rabbis in general, they would describe the Tanakh, uh, the, the Hebrew Bible, as a diamond. That every time you turn it, you see a new facet, a new beautiful angle, a new uh, uh, yeah, aspect of beauty of the Word of God. So, but yeah, I mean, if you wanted to kind of just simplify it down to, I guess, some fundamental points, I think these are two pretty good fundamental points. Uh, let's go to the next slide. Okay, let's talk about some facts, all right? I'm sure this is why you're all here today. <clears throat> so, um, the word Bible um, comes from the Greek and Latin word uh, biblia, uh, which means uh, book. Um, and what is the Bible? It's a collection of books. It's a library. It's, it's uh, but the individual books come to be one whole book. Um, the Old Testament, 39, I should have done this as trivia. Oh, well. uh, the Old Testament, 39 books. Rachel can recite the whole books of the Bible. I will take credit for that. Um, but yeah, the Old Testament, 39 books. Um, and it's, the Old Testament is referred to by ancient... So if you didn't know, mind bending uh, bit of knowledge here. The Old Testament is the Hebrew Bible, alright? It is termed uh, the Tanakh. It's a, um, it's a, um, what is it called when you have a, some, uh, no, it's like, a, you know, each word means, each letter means, okay. a, yeah. But, but yeah. that's not really like Anyway, that. anyway. So the T stands for Torah, which are the books of Moses or the books of the law or the Pentateuch as you might hear them referred to. The Nevi'im, the N, the Nevi'im is the books of the prophets, which actually also includes, interestingly enough, the books of Judges and Samuel and, uh, and um, uh, Kings and Joshua. And um, yeah, so 
you know, those are actually stories, if you remember reading them, but they're actually the books of the prophets um, because prophetic writers are writing them. Well, that's what the Hebrew people uh, acknowledge. And then the uh, K stands for the Ketuvim, which just simply means the writings. So essentially the other miscellaneous writings of the Old Testament. So you've got your Esther and your um, wisdom literature, the, the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job. You've got uh, Ruth and you know, all these other books in there. So that is the uh, Old Testament. That's the Tanakh. Um, 39 books all up. The New Testament is made up of 27 books, and it's the Apostles' writing, in summary. So, the Gospels, uh, the Book of the Acts of the Apostles, so the historical account, the narrative historical account of the spreading of, of uh, the church, and uh, the epistles from the Apostles, including Paul and Peter and James and um, those guys, and then the Apocalypse. I, I mean, some people just put the uh, Revelation as um, just part of the epistles, but I think it's something pretty different. So, um, yeah. Anyway, so that, that's the Bible in a nutshell, okay? Now, you might hear, hands up if you've ever heard of the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonical books. Yeah? All right. If you haven't, it's all good. You don't need to. I mean, you can if you want to. Uh, we'll quickly dive into this. I don't want this to be the focus of anything. But essentially, um, some uh, denomination, particularly Catholicism and uh, Orthodox Church, they have extra books in the Bible. Um, and it varies, by the way, depending on the church that you go to. So the Catholics are very different to the Orthodox. But essentially, the uh, Deuterocanonical books are things like the Book of Maccabees and... Um, I'm not sure if the Book of Enoch is in, included in something. Anyway, you'll hear about some of these things uh, as if you dig deep enough into them. They are um, well-respected, highly uh, valued texts. Um, they are texts that were written during the Second Temple period, so after the Jews were exiled and they returned back to the um, uh, to Israel to the Promised Land, and they built the Second Temple after the first one was destroyed. They, there were a few more books that were written during that time. But at that time, the Tanakh was well and truly cemented as God's word. Like, it was well and truly recognized as scripture. And some people would debate whether or not, like, the other texts held spiritual value. And so Jesus actually makes reference to the book of Maccabees. Um, uh, there are a few other references in the New Testament as well about um, the apostles referencing other, other books as well. But anyway, um, but large, by and large, when we hear about the scripture in the Bible, we're talking about the Tanakh. We're talking about the Torah, the books of the Nevi'im, and the books of the Ketuvim. Okay? All right. And they were written... Uh, yeah, okay. And yeah, so the, um, the whole Bible as a collective whole, approximately 40 authors over approximately 1,500 years. Okay? That's huge. That's massive. That's not um, like, uh, okay, George R. R. Martin takes maybe 10 years to write one book. Okay, you've got 40 authors, thereabouts, probably more, um, over 1,500 years, and they're all contributing to their own little bits and pieces. And uh, profoundly, when you read the Bible, uh, it truly is. Um, and there, there actually used to be a school of thought that used to look at the Bible as these disparate, disconnected bits that uh, you could kind of glean insight and wisdom from. But increasingly, particularly uh, in, like, with Christians, and I think now even as a, a biblical scholar, because believe it or not, not all biblical scholars are Christians. Um, and, and in fact, uh, Hebrew scholars obviously are not Christians. They're usually um, Hebrews. Uh, but Jewish, but um, either that or not, like they just got an intellectual, uh, in, like, like it from an intellectual point of view. But anyway, um, so these guys, uh, by and large, uh, you talk to anyone who studies God's word deep enough and long enough, and uh, they see this flow, this connect, this um, beautiful through line, and not just narratively, not just like, oh yeah, I can see how the story evolves and develops but metaphorically, um, uh, uh, motifs, with motifs, with poetic imagery, etc. And I'll show you this cool picture later on in this talk that shows, shows you visual representation of that. Anyway, so 40 authors, 1,500 years, and you get this profoundly dense, beautiful, amazing, insightful, uh, profound book. 
Um, and just for interest as well, the Bible is not all just, uh, oh yeah, and then uh, Moses did this, and then uh, Joshua did this, and then uh, this guy got these laws and all this kind of stuff. It's not like that, if you've ever noticed. Hands up if you've ever read the book of the Bible, and you've started going through a story, you're like, yeah, this is a cool story. And then all of a sudden, there's just like a block of text like this long, and you're like, what the heck was that? And I don't know what that is and where it came from, why it was written that way, and how does that have anything to do with anything that came before? Okay, it's because you're reading shifting narrative styles in the Bible. You go from prose narrative, you actually go from stories, and 43% of the Bible is told as a story, which is profound. Um, you then get 33% of the Bible as poetry. 33% of your Bible, one-third of your Bible, is ancient Hebrew poetry. Yeah? So it's hard to understand. You're forgiven if you don't get it. And I don't even get freaking Keats or Shakespeare, bro. I don't. Anyway, and then the last, uh, what is that, 24%? The last 24% is, um, uh, I guess, a narrative style that you could, or a, a style of literature that you could call discourse. Essentially, um, you know, like philosophy, you know, it's like putting forward an argument and kind of bouncing that argument backwards and forwards and coming to a conclusion, okay? And guess what? It's not like Genesis is all just narrative and it's not like well, Psalms is all poetry, but um, it's not that, that simple. It's not that clear cut. You'll get narrative, then you'll get a bit of poetry and then you'll get a bit of discourse in the form of some laws or in the form of whatever. And then you'll get Paul all of a sudden just pulling out the poetry in the middle of like some epic kind of argument about uh, the faith or, or you know, spiritual um, gifts and stuff like that, and then we'll just write a poem on love. So you get all these random styles thrown into the mix, um, and this is important. It's important. You know why it's important? Because you can't read a poem the same way you read a story. You can't read a, a philosophical debate or discussion the same way you're going to try to evaluate poetry, right? You have to switch gears in your brain and you have to let the Bible talk to you in the way that it's trying to talk to you. You can't, and people do this all the time. Again, Genesis 1, one of my favorite examples. It's a narrative poem. Look at it, read it. It doesn't take a genius to look and see how it's divided and it's poetic structure and all this kind of stuff. And yet, guess what they do? It's a story. This is the story of how God... And yeah, it is a story, but it's a poem. It's actually a, it's something to try to reveal. What is a poem? A poem is something that tries to use uh, evocative, powerful language to give you a deeper truth, right? It's not that the rose smells sweet. It's that it's telling you that the rose is beautiful and that maybe if it was called by another name, maybe it would have been... Anyway, it's just, whatever. I, I, like I said, I don't like Shakespeare. But, but the whole thing is that poems, uh, you know, they're having a different point than a story, and a story is having a different point as a, a philosophical discussion or argument. So, next uh, thing. So, this is fact. So, 43% um, of the Bible is a story. Yeah? Almost half of the Bible is a story. I think a good question to ask is why? Why is it the case? I mean, if I were writing a religion, if I were coming up with a religion, I'll tell you, I wouldn't write it as a story. Um, maybe that just tells you more about me than anything else. But the way I would write it is like, here's why my religion is the best, all right? Here's all the proofs and the, the points of like why you should believe and all this kind of stuff, right? But no, the Bible uh, predominantly is a story. Um, why? Why? They've done, look, they've done studies, I won't bore you, this is a kind of a little tangent, but essentially they've done studies, uh, studies and they've, what they've found is that the most profound uh, experience for a human being is to um, uh, be, the, the profound, most profound way to learn or the most profound way to um, internalize something is if you give it to someone as a story, right? So, um, and Sarah as a teacher, I'm sure she could uh, talk more about this in terms of like maybe her personal experience or whatever, but essentially, what are you, gonna, what are you going to remember? Are you going to remember someone who's going to give you like a set of points or are you going to remember someone who uses a story to illustrate a set of points, right? Um, and we all have this experience, right? How do we learn things in our day-to-day -day life? It's when they, things happen or when we hear about something happening to a friend of ours and we see the consequences and we actually attach the lesson, attach 
those things to the unfolding narrative and it's just powerful it's powerful and so personally my belief my conviction is that god obviously wired us created us and he knows what connects with us and so what did he do when he gives us his word he gives it to us in the way that connects with us the the deepest the most profound way that it can which is through predominantly stories um anyway so that begs us to ask the question what's the story now i was gonna go through this if you guys brought friends and stuff, but seeing as we're all a bunch of Bible churchy people, um, I won't go through this slide, but maybe I'll show you a video or something at the end. But, uh, but yeah, that's the story, all right? I summarized in those dot points um, the culmination of the story. It's a unified story. The point of this is that it's a unified story that culminates in Jesus. That you start in the Old Testament seeing that God created this beautiful now I'm retelling it, but created this big, beautiful, wonderful world um, with people that would co-partner with him, and then it devolves from there, it just devolves, uh, um, uh, and essentially, uh, even when he selects his own people and tries to raise them up, it still continues to devolve, and eventually, those group of people who belong to him, they are aching for a change. They're aching for something to be different. They're aching for the kingdom and the promise that God has given to them through their prophets all throughout the centuries and millennia. And then all of a sudden, that's when the Old Testament ends, full stop. You just, Malachi ends and like, okay, wait, hold on. Like, where's this Messiah guy that they've been talking about for like the past few hundred pages and what, like, what really? Because they go back to the they go back to Israel, but and they build the second temple. But they are very disappointed by the second temple, and God's presence isn't there as powerfully as the first. They're like, "What? This is where it ends." And then all of a sudden, you just uh, open up to Matthew chapter one, and then you hear this is a story about Jesus, and then the, the the rest of the narrative pivots on him. And as you read through the Gospels, everything, everything from the altar, intentionally designed. Um, by the writers and, and inspired by God, everything is culminated and, and perfectly embodied in Jesus as the Messiah. And then we get this future hope um, that he brought us the first fruits, as, as Paul later write, the first fruits of the new, uh, the new kingdom, the, the resurrection. Um, but uh, we will see that fully at some point. So that's the story. Okay, the writing of the Bible. So um, I guess if there's one thing that you can remember from tonight um, and that I think that you should take with you is that it's divine, the Bible, the writing of the Bible is divine inspiration through human hearts, hands, minds, experiences, language in a specific time. It's not like we talked about before, zap in your brain, just go into a coma for a second, come to and there's a pages in front of you that I've told you to write. It's not, um, you know, uh, whatever, anything like that. It's not just God just beaming it down to someone. It is the work of people that were inspired by God. And we're going to look at some example because the Bible doesn't hide this. Yeah? Sometimes when we talk about this, we get offended, we get shocked, we get a little bit defensive. But the Bible does not hide this. And we're going to look at some examples about how uh, the Bible is very candid about how this happens. Um, but yeah, this is very, very important point to grasp. Um, and again, you know, the only reason why that could offend you is because you heard a false narrative through your whole life or through your church experience so far. And that false narrative is that, yeah, that somehow God just wants to do things. No, actually, if you closely read the Bible, the whole thing in the Bible is God engaging and interacting with humanity to bring about his purposes for the world, right? Jesus himself... God himself, the Messiah himself, human, God made flesh. Not just God just saying, what's up, here I am. All right, let's, no, is God coming? And uh, so why would it be any different from the writing of the Bible? Um, it's a collection of collections, all right? Every book that you read is a collection, iteration on iteration on collection. Um, uh, the best way to think about this is and this is a great this is a great um, uh, illustration that I, the best illustration I've heard to kind of explain this. When Sarah and I got married, or when we first met, when we became a couple, uh, guess what happens when you become a couple? Everyone asks, "How did you become a couple?" Right? 
Now, the first few times you tell the story, you know, it might be like, okay, well, this is how I remember it, and it might be very long-winded, and it might be very, like, details that aren't really important to the story, or it might just be, I, I kind of remember something wrongly, and Sarah will correct me, or something like that. And then, uh, but then, as you tell it more and more and more, guess what happens? The story gets tighter, you, you know the parts, I'll say my, my part, I'll look to Sarah, she'll like say her part, and then, uh, and it becomes like a bit of a dance, and a little, and we might kind of take some short turns, we might not tell you everything, we might actually kind of like simplify moments, we might kind of hide some of the agony, or, or amplify some of the agony, um, but the idea is that it's all, it's not like we're lying, it's not like this is not true, we lived it, we know what the heck is going on, we, we know the story, but we're trying to convey a message, yeah? We're trying to tell the story in the best possible mode and fashion to carry across a purpose and a vision for why the story is being told. Now again, if that's hitting your ears as heresy, it's just, we're going we're gonna to see how that happens. Um, but it's just the truth, all right? And it doesn't mean that it's any less divine. In fact, do you know, when I took uh, uh, history in year 12, my uh, history teacher, he said, well, we were talking about the philosophy behind history, and he said something that I found very profound. He said, well, and, and you, you all know this, you've all heard the phrase, you know, history is uh, that which the conquerors write, right? You know, like the, whoever is the winner at the end of the battle, they're the ones who get to write history the way that they want to, right? It's not that it didn't happen the way that they're saying, it's just that they put a slant on it to give you a, their intentioned outcome, right? And um, uh, yeah, uh, this, is, this is true for the Bible. Like when the biblical authors, and we've discussed this in Life Group, when you read the book of Judges, when you read the, this, this, that, that, you read all these stories and you see all of a sudden, <clears throat> you see all of a sudden these moments where all of a sudden an author will say something like, and then God did this. How do they know God did that, right? The whole thing there is that they are seeing history unfold, they're witnessing it, and they're writing it down, and by God's divine uh, um, uh, uh, inspiration, they are acknowledging His hand at work in their life and in the history of the nation's life, and they are passing that message on, right? This is what prophecy is as well. Prophecy is not foretelling the future, although that can be a part of it. Prophecy is a message that someone is convicted by God to give to a certain person or group of people, right? It's not just, one day you will die, or this is how this is going to happen. It's, you have been a very bad king, you have ignored the poor, you have, uh, you know, sacrificed children to Molech, and you've done all this awful stuff, and this is what God will do to you. This is how God will punish you. And guess what? They use imagery of, like, essentially apocalypse, like fire and da-da-da, like essentially the same imagery that they find in the uh, um, Exodus, the um, plagues, the ten plagues on Egypt. Why? Because they're using poetic imagery to say, God will bring about a similar day where he judges you just the way he judged uh, Pharaoh, right? So it's not that they're saying, this is how it's exactly going to go down. They're saying, God will bring judgment. This is why God will bring judgment. This is the purpose and this is God's hand in the whole thing. So the whole idea is that it's, um, it's, a, it's a collection of collections. It's a group of texts that are undergoing this, uh, this profound uh, writing and editorial um, uh, transition and phase to bring about and to sharpen and hone the message that God has for his people. Um, and it's extremely hyperlinked. Uh, if you read the first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, so the creation, the full narrative, uh, guess what? You've got about 80% of all the imagery if you'll ever need to understand the rest of the Bible. All the stuff to do with the serpent and all the stuff to do with the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and all the creation um, um, uh, imagery and motifs and all these things... Um, it's, 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 it's imagery and it's motifs and it's arsenal for you to understand and to hyperlink and to carry that across to understand the rest of the biblical uh, text as it unfolds. Again, like, you know, when the prophets are writing and they're talking about a shoot coming out from Jesse or whatever else, they're not 
just talking like they're not just coming up with this on the spot. They're re- referencing previous texts and passages. It's Wikipedia. The Bible's Wikipedia. Um, it's the original Wikipedia. You know how you read an article and you're like, oh, uh, and James Brown did this, and you're like, what the heck was that in 1982? What's that? And then you click the link, and then all of a sudden it'll lead you to this thing. And, and then, like, you know, half an hour later, you're reading about, I don't know, gummy bears or something. <laughs> so this is this is the the Bible. The Bible is a hyperlinked collection of collections, and it's um uh yeah it's 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 collated and organized and arranged in a very beautiful significant way. We're going to look at an example of this. Uh, so Jeremiah chapter thirty six. Um, Jeremiah is a very interesting book. When they dug up a bunch of the uh, original texts, or like you know the precursor texts, and we'll look at some of those in a sec, like the Dead Sea Scrolls and stuff like that. There's a lot of variation in Jeremiah. Some uh, uh, parts of Jeremiah fifteen percent shorter than other um, texts of Jeremiah that they dug up over time. So this is, that in and of itself tells you that it's edited and editorialized, okay? But have a look. It's in the Bible. It's not, no one's hiding this. It's there. So uh, this is the story where Jeremiah is about, he's like coming to a head. Babylon is on the doorstep of of Israel and um, they're about to get exiled and Jeremiah's like, hey guys, you, you know, wake up. So this is what happens. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel. So all the other 35 chapters that we got beforehand. Um, Concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah till now. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, they will each turn from their wicked ways. Then I will forgive their wickedness and their sin. So Jeremiah called Baruch, son of Neriah. And while Jeremiah dictated all the words the Lord had spoken to him, so you get this image of Baruch sitting there with his uh, whatever he was using to write, and yeah, maybe Microsoft Word, and then uh, uh, and Jeremiah is just like pacing, saying, yeah, God told me this, and he told me that, but using obviously the poetry and all the stuff that he does. Um, so he's writing it all down, and it says, Baruch wrote them on the scroll, okay? Then... What happens is Baruch is then commanded by Jeremiah to go to uh, um, the temple or the courts of the temple or whatever and speak these words, read it aloud, let everyone hear it. And guess what Baruch does? He does exactly what Jeremiah says. Then guess who hears him? The king hears about what Baruch is doing. He grabs Baruch into the throne room. He grabs the scroll of Baruch. And you know what he starts to do? He starts to tear apart the scroll little bit by little bit and throwing him in the fire. He's like, I don't like that bit. God's cursing me here. God's saying he's going to judge me here. Jeremiah's a scumbag for comparing me to this animal. And he's just throwing out all these things and he's not happy at all. Then Baruch comes back to Jeremiah. He's like, sorry, bro, we lost it. All burned away. This would have been like weeks of maybe even longer of work. Uh, like it would have taken a while. Um, and then this is what we hear in verse 32. So Jeremiah took another scroll. And gave it to the scribe Baruch, son of Neriah. And as Jeremiah dictated, Baruch wrote on it all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. Full stop, next story, off we go. Does that bother you? What were the similar words? Are we reading that or are we reading something closer to the original? Does it bother you? It shouldn't. It shouldn't. This is God's word to his people using dust with his divine breath, inspiring that dust to write and to say and to speak and to give it to his people. Let's have a look at another, um, uh, oh yeah, just a little aside. Um, So in the 1990s, when I was a kid, uh, what happened was they were excavating and they found this and uh, this is in Hebrew, and the text on the ring is Baruch, son of Neriah. And when, uh, whenever someone would write something, they would sign it. It's like I said, this is who wrote this thing. This was Baruch's signatory. And you can't really tell, but that is a thumbprint. That's probably Baruch's thumbprint. Now, again, does that bother you? Does it bother you knowing 
that a human being with a human signet ring wrote these words, then added a few extra words to it, and then you've got his human thing right in front of you? Or does that fill you with awe? And does that fill you with like just thank you God that you can use us and you can continue your story and continue uh, your will even through uh, the frailty of something like this and make it last? Yeah? This, I think, is a metaphor to me about everything that we're talking about tonight. Um, <clears throat> okay. Let's have a look at uh, something else. So a collation of collations, yeah? The Bible is a collation of collations. Um, don't believe me? Let's have a look at Proverbs. So Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1, starts off by saying, okay, this is the words of Solomon, uh, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. And we all read Proverbs and we're like, this is Solomon's proverb. He's so smart. He's so wise. He was such a great... He's the smartest guy. He's the wisest guy. Uh, you know, until Jesus came along, this is the smartest guy. And then verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 17 comes along, and then it just shifts gears. And in fact, if you read your Bible, some of your Bibles will have the heading, the saying of the wise, uh, uh, the wise, uh, the sayings of the wise. Yeah. Pay attention. Turn your ear to the sayings of the wise. So all of a sudden we just shift gears and like, okay, that's enough of Solomon stuff. Let's hear about the sayings of the wise. Then in uh, chapter 25, verse 1, these are more proverbs of Solomon compiled by the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Hezekiah was like 200 years after Solomon. Right? So here's some more words of Solomon, but by the way, he's been dead for like 200 years. Right? Uh, chapter 30, verse 1. The sayings of Agur, son of Jacob, an inspired utterance. You never hear of this guy ever again. You don't know who the heck he is. He doesn't show up in any other ancient literature. This is the only time you're ever going to hear about him. And here it is in the book of Proverbs. And chapter 31. Um, the sayings of King Lemuel, an inspired utterance from his mother. Who taught him? So not just Lemuel himself, but his mom. We're getting Lemuel's mom's wisdom. So, uh, yeah, Proverbs is a compilation. This is a book that hundreds of years it took to write this book, compile it, edit it. They're like, oh yeah, this is pretty good. Get Lemuel, that, that guy, his mom was pretty smart. Let's add that into the mix. Yeah. Does that offend you? Does that worry you? No. You know what? The author of uh, the book of Proverbs, the person compiling it to the version that we have today, if you asked him, so was it Solomon? Are you lying? Like, why didn't you just cross that bit out and just say, here's a, some wise thing? Like, no, no, Solomon did write it. And so did Lemuel, and some, so did Agar, and so did blah, 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 blah. But ultimately, do you catch what else is being said here? An inspired utterance. These are not just human words. These are words that are recognized by the editors and the compilers as divine wisdom that has been granted to human beings and that is being collated and compiled for our benefit. Right, so we'll go to the next one. Okay, Luke chapter 1. It's not just to the Old Testament guys. It's in the New Testament as well. Um, so Luke chapter 1 in the opening of Luke. Luke says this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself, this is Luke talking, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Okay? Luke is very upfront, very candid. I wasn't there. Uh, some people were. They, you know, there's been all these stories circulating around. You commissioned me to write this thing, Theophilus. So guess what? I went around. I talked to a bunch of eyewitnesses. I you know, went around here and there. And I absorbed myself with the apostles and blah, blah, blah. And here is an account. Here is an accurate account. As, as best as I can uh, collate, here's an account of what Jesus' life was like and what he did in the death and resurrection. And Luke didn't just write the book of Luke. He wrote the book of Acts. So Luke and Acts, you should always read them as one thing. It's a continuation of the story and uh, uh, a development of where <clears throat> thing, things were going. So, uh, yeah, it's, um, yeah. Does it offend you to know that some guy uh, went around asking people, oh, yeah, so Jesus, yeah, I, so you were one of his apostles. Uh, interview. He was a reporter. He was a reporter. He was a documentarian. And he went around and that's what he did. He made a documentary about Jesus. And that's what we see in Luke and Acts. So, let's have a look. In, uh, so this here is Jesus himself saying, now, at this point, you might be saying, well, how the heck can I, like, you know, well, is the Tanakh 
like, should I just take David's word for it? Uh, okay, this is Jesus' word. Uh, Luke 24, verse 44. Jesus said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. So this is after his resurrection. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the Torah, the prophets, the Nevi'im, and the Psalms, which is the beginning of the Ketavim. Jesus is looking at this collated work as one. He's looking at the scriptures, the Old Testament, as one. And he is saying, this all pointed towards me. And he taught his apostles in that same manner. And that is why we have the Bible that we have today. Um, so yeah, it's a collection of collections. It's a divine uh, word through dust and dirt. It is an um, uh, editorialized hyperlinked, beautiful cacophony, or no, symphony of um, imagery and words and thoughts and experience and all of it to reveal who God is and who we are and the relationship we have with Him and what the relationship He wants to have with us. This is a picture, you can't tell how beautiful this is, but this is a visual representation of the Bible. Um, every single line, those are all little lines, Every single white line is a passage from the Bible. And the length of it is how many times it's repeated throughout the Bible. And then those arcs, those um, rainbow arcs, they're the connection points uh, of how many times the Bible links to itself and refers to these different passages over and over again. 16,000, almost 16,500 times the Bible references itself and cross-references itself and brings up this imagery and brings up this motif and brings up... So there's a lot to study. There's a lot of beauty to be found. And it's crafted by people, but crafted with divine inspiration. Because imagine you being 40 people over 1,500 years trying to do that yourself. You can't. Of course you can't. It's divine providence and divine inspiration. Wait, what was that in the middle? The line in the middle. I like Isaiah... I actually don't know what each of these lines refer to in terms of passages, but I am keen to find out. I asked myself that, but I was preparing this for six hours, so I was like, let's get a move on. Um, okay. Let's quickly run through the composition and the selection of the Bible, because this is something that a lot of people will probably ask you about, and probably you guys have a lot of questions about yourself, and then hopefully we'll end up after that. Okay, so the composition of the Old Testament. So there are three main, uh, three main texts that we derive the uh, uh, Tanakh from. Um, and they are, and you would have heard of these, um, they are the uh, Septuagint or the LXX. You heard of that? Anyone heard of the Septuagint? Yeah, if you read, uh, like when you open up your Bible and you have these footnotes, you will see the Septuagint text says this, but the Masoretic text says this, right? Okay. Um, the Masoretic text and the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? There was also this. Um, uh, a set of texts found in Cairo that termed the Cairo Geniza texts um, and I'll show you a cool picture in a sec but um, so the dates that I've listed there next to the different texts are the time period that they were written okay so you've got the oldest as a Septuagint which is from the Hellenistic Jews so this is after they've been exiled and they've come back to Israel and uh, some of the Jews aren't in Israel anymore. They've, they're in Greece, they're in here, they're, they're all over the world now because they've been exiled and they've moved around and stuff like that. But um, these rabbis and these um, uh, essentially people who've studied the Torah, the Tanakh, they were like, we've got to write this down and translate it into Greek because all of our fellow people, you know, they can't, they don't know Hebrew anymore. And so they wrote the Septuagint. Um, and it was written from around about 285 BC to 270 BC. It's very old, okay? Really old. Um, and it exists, and you can read it, you can actually read it, um, and it's beautiful. Um, then, the second oldest is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, this is a great story. Does anyone know the story of how they found the Dead Sea Scrolls? It's a really cool story. One time, there was a shepherd boy uh, on the kind of coast of like near Israel, and uh, he was herding a bunch of his goats. Anyway, he was just throwing rocks around, and he threw a rock into a cave, but instead of hearing you know, the normal sound of the rock echoing against stone, he heard, heard a crack, uh, like a, a vast shattering. He's like, what the heck? So he rocked up to the, the cave, and what did he find? 
hundreds of, like thousands of ancient manuscripts of the Bible. Um, and that's what the Dead Sea Scrolls are. So they were written from 250 BC to 68 AD. The reason why this is really important is because for the first time you had Jewish writing, the, the scriptures uh, written from around the same time that Jesus uh, would have been written. So when you read the um, Dead Sea Scrolls, um, essentially what you're reading is the modern day or Jesus's modern day version of what the scriptures were like. Okay, And uh, not only that, but it was probably one of the most complete versions of the Old Testament, like in a single body. And not only that, but it was perfectly, almost perfectly preserved. And not only that, but it, it was, like when they compared it to the other texts that they had found at this point, which was the Masoretic and the uh, Septuagint, what they ended up finding was, was that, like, there was very little difference. Like, they were. And these are, again, just to put that in perspective, that's like 270 BC to 68 AD. Those are hundreds of years. And then, not only that, but the Masoretic texts are from like the 900s AD, right? So you go literally thousands of years, and the Bible is essentially the same. Essentially. Uh, there are differences. We won't go into those differences today. Um, and I'm still wrapping my head around those differences, if I'm honest. But the differences are very negligible. I put in a quote of uh, a famous um, uh, dude who was like, researching all this kind of stuff and, and he essentially says that um, he analyzed the uh, chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53 um, uh, the suffering servant chapter like probably the most important chapter to Christianity uh, from the point of view of the Old Testament and um, out of the 166 words and if you were to say that each word is about four letters long that's what like 600 and something uh, uh, letters uh, all up so out of the 600 or so letters there are only 17 letters that are a bit debatable compared to the other texts that they already had. Um, and out of those 17, essentially all of them were slight uh, variations on spelling or like instead of can't, uh, cannot, it was can't or you know, uh, things like that. Um, but there were only three letters that they couldn't, um, uh, like that was seemed like they came out of nowhere and that was it. And, and that, those three letters made up a word called, what was it? Lie or something like that? L I G L, four letters or three letters? Oh, yeah. Compare the word lie. Anyway, so it had, didn't really change anything in terms of the meaning or, or the point of the text. So, anyway, so that's profound and amazing and wonderful. Um, and then the Masoretic texts, but written by the Masoretes and the Karaganese. The Karaganese, I'll just quickly t tell you about, is in the next picture. Um, we'll quickly just flick to that and then go back. This is a guy called Solomon Shekens or something like that. He was a Cambridge professor. There's more information than you need to know. But anyway, in 1896 in Cairo, there was a synagogue. And in that synagogue, you had a bunch of people who, uh, this, the, the synagogue people were like, we need to expand or we want to make a renovation. And so they went to break down one of the walls. And all of a sudden in this wall was piles of ancient texts. Um, and most of them were uh, scripture. Um, and anyway, then this guy, Solomon, who's a Cambridge professor, they called him down like, hey bro, can you help sort through this stuff? And so that was his whole life's work from then on, was sorting through all those things. Just go back, Daniel. So anyway, um, so you, get, you read these beautiful, amazing stories about the preservation, the collection, the discovery of the Bible. Um, and then that's, that's just the Old Testament. Um, now, the other thing that's important to know about the Old Testament is that, like we said before, there was never really doubt about the canon. You guys know what canon is? Nowadays with Star Wars and all that kind of stuff, everyone knows what the freaking canon is. But essentially, canon, uh, uh, canonical things, are things that are, that are consistent. Um, the actual word means a yardstick or a measuring rod. So the idea is like you measure everything up and you see if it's all like, you know, consistent. Um, and so the canon of the Old Testament, the Tanakh, the books of the Torah, the books of the Nevi'im, the books of the Ketuvim, they were never in debate uh, from essentially when they were written. When they were written every time, the people acknowledged it as God's divine word. Um, and so the canon was never in question for the Old Testament. The New Testament, just quickly, um, 
it's the most reliable ancient set of ancient documents there is in existence. Okay, um, the uh, Gospels and the Epistles and uh, the yeah they're they're by far the most uh, abundant source uh, uh, that exists. Um, and what I mean by that is that um, the these books, the Gospels, um, particularly the Gospels, they were written about 60, 70 A.D. Jesus. Um, is essentially um, his death and resurrection it was around about 30 AD. So, like 30, 40 years after his death and resurrection, these books were in existence. Before that point, you still have earlier documents, or, or the um, the suggestion of that there were earlier documents prior to this point. But um, the Gospels, as we know them, they were in existence about 30, 40 years after Jesus um, had already gone uh, back to the Father. And um, anyway, so they were written about 6800 AD. Then they, um, uh, the earliest copies that we still have, so that exist on this planet Earth today, they range from 114 AD to 325 AD. So in other words, over about 100 years, so we don't have the OG like 60 AD manuscripts, right? We've got the ones that came about 100 years later, okay? So 100 years difference, that may seem like a crazy map to you, but that's actually very impressive, as I'll show you in a sec. And not only that, but the manuscripts we do have, there's over 5,000 copies of these manuscripts, okay? Which, again, it's been over 2,000 years, and we've got like over 5,000 copies of these things. Compare that with some of literature's most uh, recognized, famous, celebrated works like Homer's Iliad, which was written about 800 BC, and the earliest copies that we have is 400 years later, so not a 100 year gap, 400 year gap, yeah? And there's only 643 of those remaining, yeah? Compared to 5,000. And then if you look at something like Plato, Plato's not a, and Homer and the Iliad, these are not like stupid little texts that like, people are like, oh, this won't be popular or famous. No, people like loved this stuff. Like this was highly revered work. Plato was a legend. Yeah, Plato's work um, was written in 380 BC. The earliest copies are from almost what well, 900 AD, so over a thousand years later. Yeah, and only seven copies exist. All right. So these are important historical documents and texts, but the New Testament unparalleled, profoundly surpasses the, uh, the amount that we have of it. And not only that, but the texts of the New Testament, there's no difference. Like, there's bits of differences with the uh, Old Testament, but the New Testament, there's like no difference. No difference. You can compare, and many people have compared text to text and no difference. Alright, <clears throat> as for the canon, we'll just mention this quickly. So the canon with the New Testament, Again, it took about um, 400 years before this thing called the uh, Council of Carthage. Council of Carthage met up together and these guys were like, alright guys, so let's just confirm what's going to be in the New Testament. No one debated what was the Old Testament, everyone knew what the Old Testament was. But what's going to be the New Testament? They sat down together and it's not like they were like, like this guy was championing for First and Second Peter and this guy was like, no brother. No, no, no. At that point already in history, because there were, like it was 400 years later guys, uh, at that point, the copies that had existed, they were essentially the canon. So the canon was the copies of things that, that were profoundly distributed amongst the church and profoundly shared um, and profoundly recognized as the um, inspired words of God. So there was no debate. Re like, really, there was no debate. There was like a couple of books, like the book of Hebrews and um, I think the book of James, maybe, that was like slightly like, oh, but we don't know who the author actually was or whatever else. But ultimately, everyone was like, well, no, we've been kind of reading it and sharing it for hundreds of years already. We can't, like, it's, it's God's work to come back. And there were a bunch of tests that, well, we, we won't talk about that now, but there were a bunch of tests that they would apply to each book to uh, double check and make sure that everyone was on board and that it was divine. Kind of thing. All right. Um, those are the Dead Sea Scrolls. So they were discovered in 1947, by the way. So they lasted from, like, BC uh, 200 till, like, 1947 and that kid just threw the rock at me. Anyway, okay. Um, uh, if you want to, again, see it in the Bible itself, it's not like Paul's just writing a bunch of stuff and saying, well, I hope 
I hope this helps people. Um, or Peter's like writing something. I hope this helps people. And I wonder if this will last. They viewed their work as scripture. And Peter writes to the church. He says um, about Paul's writing. He says. Paul writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, uh, which ignorant and unstable uh, people distort as they do other scripture um, to their own destruction. In other words, Peter here is saying, guys, yeah, in the same way that you're debating Paul's stuff, guess what? People debate other scripture. He's counting Paul's work as scripture. And he's saying, guys, uh, yeah, when you distort it, it's to your own destruction. It's, this is God's word, essentially. Don't distort God's word. Um, all right. So all of that to say, and this is what we're going to wrap up with. Uh, so we've explored um, what, we've explored how, we've explored all this stuff. Um, why does the Bible exist? Why does it exist, particularly for you and me who, are, who call ourselves followers of Jesus? Uh, Paul summarizes it in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. But for you, he's talking to Timothy... Continue on what you have learned and have become convinced of. Because as you know, uh, as you know, those from whom you learned it um, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why do we read the Bible? Why do we need to know about it? Why do we dive into it? Um, it's because it's God-breathed. Yes, it's written by human hands, but it's this beautifully collated, collaborated word that is God-inspired, and it's useful for teaching me. I don't know God's ways unless I'm taught by His Word. It's useful for rebuking me. David, you don't live your life the way that you say from the front of a whatever you should live your life so be rebuked by God's word let it correct you I need to realign myself with what God's word is teaching me and saying to me about, um, uh, about my life and about uh, the nature of my reality and training me in righteousness how am I going to engage with the world around me in a way that is godly that is just, that is holy, that is pure that is helpful, that is loving um, so that I can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And again, if you look through the Bible, particularly uh, the New Testament, you look for that passage, equipped for every good work. You know when it's used most for? For caring for the poor, and caring for the sick, and caring for the homeless, and the downtrodden. So that I can actually not just be someone who has it all up in here and lives a life that's all up in here, but a life that's outpoured, just like Jesus' life was outpoured. So, um, all right, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, we'll wrap up. Um, we won't watch the video or anything else that I have for you guys today. But um, yeah, but God's Word. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's not something to be scared of or ashamed of. It's something that as you look into it and discover it, it fills you with profound awe at God's hand guiding history and guiding humanity to a deeper knowledge and understanding of Him, um, not just through the individual stories, but through the recording of these stories and the recording of the way that these people put it all together. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for who you are and for your word. We thank you that you are God and that you love us so very much that um, you gave us this collection of writing um, to reveal yourself to us and to show us who we are and how you see us. Lord. I just pray, Lord, that we would... Um, again, not just hear these words and not just be a little bit stimulated by them intellectually, but Lord, that we would um, take a hold of the truth that you have for us and uh, that Lord, you would let it dig deep in our hearts and change who we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.